For the month of September and October, we're going to be in a series titled, A Church Called Good. It's about rejecting the toxic culture of celebrity and consumerism that sometimes engulfs the modern church, and instead embracing and nurturing a culture of goodness. Appreciate you listening. I didn't request that song, but it's perfect because that's where I'm at this morning as a, a heart full of gratitude. Because as Ebony mentioned, today is uh, the 20, this church turned 20 years old, 20th anniversary of this church. Our first service was held the first Sunday of October in 2001 at what's now the Mule Town Event Center. It did not look like that at the time we met there. Uh, for those of you that were there, it was the old rundown First Baptist Church at that time. Puke green carpet, padded pews, sloped floor, leaking roof. Uh, there were people sleeping in the basement. Like you could go downstairs and find where people, like you did not go in that building after dark. It was one of those, we didn't occupy all the building. The thing was falling apart. You could go to the third floor and look and the wall was separating down. You could see all the way down to the first floor. And we had these big 50-gallon trash buckets that were up on the third floor. And every time it rained, like it did this weekend, we had somebody had to go around. We had a deacon of trash buck emptying, you know, that uh, anytime the roof was leaking. And I, I loved that old building. There's so many good memories in that building. I tried to plan our, our 20th anniversary event there. We called the Mule Town to say, hey, could we have our event there? Because that would be so nostalgic. And they said, yeah, $8,000 for the day, and you can have it. So we're not having it there. Uh, no. <laughs> I think they gave us half price, but we still ain't having it there. We got our own building now. But um, today also marks the, the 17th anniversary of me being the preacher here. So I actually started the third anniversary of the church, the first Sunday of October in 2004 was uh, my first Sunday preaching. And for those of you that were here, I saw several of you this morning, those of you that were still here, uh, <laughs> You know that I, it took me a long time to say yes to this church. Like, it, I, I was very leery about coming to Murray Hills. I said no way more than I said yes, and there were multiple reasons for that. Uh, one, this church didn't have a great track record with preachers. So I was set to be the third preacher in the first three years of the church. And uh, it was kind of a three-structure-out thing. Like, if this doesn't work with you, we may just close the doors, which is not exactly the vote of confidence you want as you're stepping into a new role. Uh, two, I wasn't sure that I wanted to live in a big city like Columbia. Like, I wasn't sure about this. Because for those of you who don't know, I'm from Hohenwald. And we can, you know, we can count the red lights on one hand. There was one fast food restaurant. I wasn't sure about these big city folk. I just, I wasn't sure about moving to Columbia. And I actually made... A condition of my employment. I called Gary Van Warmer. After I accepted the job, I called Gary Van Warmer and said, so if we don't want to live in Columbia, is that okay? Could we just keep driving from Hohenwald? And he said, yeah, that's fine if that's what you want to do. And uh, so, I mean, I, was, I just wasn't sure about moving to the big city. Uh, three, there was only one other employee on staff, and uh, it was the church secretary, and I was worried about her because, I mean, she'd already run off two preachers. So I'm like, what's going to happen next? And you know, like, what am I going to do? So I was asking all kinds of questions about, like, tell me about this Sherry Michener. You know, what is she like? Is she difficult to get along with? Is, uh, is she a high-maintenance personality? You know, is this, is like, is she kind to people? Because 
I'd heard some horror stories about honorary church secretaries, and I was nervous about Sherry Michener. And, of course, you guys are laughing that know her, that know that's the furthest thing from the truth. Um, I mean, Sherry is, is awesome, and she's, she's no longer church secretary. She's our member care minister now, and this is actually her 20th anniversary because she, was the, she came with the church. So she, this is her 20th anniversary, so congratulations to her wherever she is. She's probably out here working in the hallway somewhere. Um, but man, I just kept going this week. Like I just, I was making all the lists, all the reasons that I did not want to come to Murray Hills. And I was like, it was, I was the fourth generation in a family business that I was set to take over. So it was my great granddaddy started it. And then he gave it to my granddaddy and gave it to my daddy. And I was set to take it over as the, as the fourth generation. It's been in the family for 80 plus years. I wasn't sure I wanted my kids to be preacher's kids. I know I didn't want my kids to be preacher's kids, but unfortunately that's what they became because I'm a preacher. I didn't want my wife to be a preacher's wife. She didn't want to be a preacher's wife. She didn't want people People gossiping about it, you know, well, Jenny didn't show up to Sister Bertha's bridal shower, whatever. You know, I did, we didn't want that. We didn't know if the church was going to be around, if it was going to make it. I, start, I just started making a list this week of all the reasons I did not want to come to Murray Hills. And by now, you probably ought to be thinking, well, why did you come? You know, why? If there were all these reasons not to come, why come? I came for one reason. There was one thing that attracted me to this church. And it really, if you think about it from a rational perspective, it did not make sense to leave an established family business. It did not make sense to uproot my family. It did not make sense to change careers. It did not make sense to come, uh, move to another city. I mean, it did not make sense to come to a church that was really kind of, who knew what was going to happen there? I mean, who knew how long it was going to last? I mean, it, none of it made sense, but there was one thing that attracted me to this church. It was a compelling vision. This church had a vision that I was attracted to and I wanted to be a part of. And the vision was to be a non-denominational, non-judgmental church in Murray County. To, to help people who'd been trapped in religion or legalistic faith to find help, hope, and healing. To be a safe place. To be a grace-oriented church. To help people discover the freedom of God's grace and the power of God's love. And I wanted to be a part of that. Like, I had had enough of the other side. I'd, I'd had a good dose of religion and legalistic faith, and I myself was a recovering Pharisee, and I'd only discovered grace about 10 years prior. And so when I heard a group of people talking about, we just want to have a grace-centered church, we just want to be a place where everybody's welcome, we want to be a place where everybody feels accepted, we want to be a place where people can discover who God is and grow in His love. Like, I wanted to sign up for that. No matter, I don't care where you're meeting, I don't care, you know, what it looks like, I don't care how many people you've been before me, like, I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of building something good in this community. And that's what attracted me. And that's what we're still trying to do as a church. Now, I did not uh, mean for this, this series to fall on the 20th anniversary, I wasn't thinking that. When I made out the preaching schedule, I wasn't thinking like, oh, this would be a good series right around that time. I was not thinking that at all. But I'm so glad that this series fell where it did because it's recentering me on who we need to be as a church. Like it's recentering me on why we started a church in the first place and what church is supposed to look like because it's so easy. And any of you know who've been in church for any length of time know it's so easy to get off track. It's so easy to get off track. And there's, there's mistakes I've made as a leader, and there's regrets I have as a leader, times where I think my ego got in the way just a little bit, and there's, there's like some conversations I wish I had back, and there's some decisions I wish I had back. But at the end of the day, I, I want to be, 
I want us to be a good church, and I want to be a part of building something good, and I want to be a part of a vision that I find compelling and can get excited about and, and can, can get enthusiastic about, and, and let's build this thing. And that's what this series has done for me. It's helped kind of recenter me on what's most important. What's most important is not, you know, growing a brand or building a platform or all these What's most important is creating a, a community of faith that nurtures the things of Jesus, that nurtures humility, authenticity, empathy, service, Christ-likeness, to create a community of faith that nurtures Christ-likeness where we are growing more in the image of Christ and that when I gather with the church, whether I'm gathering in the room or whether I'm gathering online, when I gather with the church, it's helping me become a better person. Like it's helping me become a better husband, a better father, or, you know, a a better friend, a better employee, a better boss, a a better friend. I mean, a better leader. I mean, I think following Jesus should help us become better. Like, as we follow Jesus and we let the Spirit work in our hearts, it helps us become better people. And that's what church is about. It's about helping people, not hurting people. And I want to be a part of that. And what we're talking about today is at the very center of that. We're talking today about good churches nurture service. And that's at the very heart of who we should be as a church and who we should be as Christians. But we're going to go, uh, we're going to get to that. We're talking about good churches nurture service. We're going to get to it like this because my text is Matthew chapter 23. And uh, you know that we've been talking about these woes that Jesus gives to the religious leaders. And he gives seven of them, and the seventh one is the one we're going to look at today. And uh, the first six are pretty easy to understand. The, the ones we looked at last Sunday were very easy to understand. Each one of them are about being hypocritical. So each one of them he's saying, Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This one is a little bit harder to understand, but I hope uh, in the next 15 minutes I can kind of help it make some sense for you. So beginning in verse 29. Is that where we're at, Keith? Can you throw that up for me? Because uh, I don't want to do this. It's starting to get embarrassing. I'm, <laughs> eventually, I'm going to have to pull out the readers. Um, verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now that one's a little bit more confusing, right? And it's, this, this whole speech that Jesus is giving here, this teaching is crescendoing into compassion, believe it or not, if you look at the very last couple of verses there. But Jesus is kind of taking these religious leaders to task for all the ways that they've been hypocritical. And the thing he's coming at them now is to say that you build these tombs towards the prophets and you decorate their graves and you remember them and you say, if we had been alive in our ancestors' days, if we had been alive during that time, we would not have persecuted the prophets. We would not have, have martyred the prophets. We would have been supportive of the prophets. And Jesus is saying, no, you wouldn't have. Because you're still pretending. He's basically calling their bluff. And if you look up uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on it, he makes a very interesting point about it. He says, it's easy to show reverence and respect for the prophets of old because we were not alive back then to heed their warnings. If we had been, then we might 
have thought of them a little bit differently. So he's talking about, you know, like the Old Testament prophets. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Like it's very easy to go back and look at the Old Testament prophets and go, oh, yeah, I mean, the, I support their message. And I, I absolutely, we, we honor them and we re- revere them as, as prophets. But no prophet is respected in his or her day because they're saying things that are difficult to hear in their day. They're saying things that are, they're calling out sin. That's what typically what a prophet does. They're calling out sin and nobody wants to hear sin called out. Like I thought of as I was thinking about this, and you can, I'll read the quote real quick from Matthew Henry. Carnal people can easily honor the memories of faithful ministers that are dead and gone because they do not reprove them nor disturb them in their sins. So it's easy for somebody to say, make that, that, that minister a hero after they're gone because uh, they're not calling out our sin. And I thought of several examples here. One of them was Martin Luther King Jr. He's a hero now. He wasn't a hero in the 60s. But I, a letter from a Birmingham jail, I love that writing from King. And I, I mean, that is, that is such an inspiring writing to me. And I try to read that at least once a year. Sometime in February, I try to read Letter from a Birmingham Jail because I think it is, is, it's a call to action. It's inspiring. It shows the theological brilliance of King. But then I have to catch myself and say, if I was alive when King wrote it, would I have felt the same about it? If I was one of the pastors in Birmingham that he wrote that letter to, would I have felt the same way about it? Or you think back to like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and his opposition to Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. And most German Lutheran pastors were just going along with it. That was the, the biggest problem in, in Germany was not, I don't know if I'd say it that way, but one of the problems in Germany was not just Hitler, but the apathy of the German people or the willingness of the German people to just go along with it, and especially the religious or the clergy. And Bonhoeffer's one of the ones that opposed that. And I like to look at Bonhoeffer and go, if I was, and he wrote a great book called The Cost of the Discipleship, if I was alive in that time, I would have opposed Nazism. I would have spoke out against the Holocaust. I would have risked my life. We like to think that we would have, but would we? Would we have had the courage to do those things? And see, it's very easy now for us to celebrate people like Bonhoeffer and to celebrate people like King when, when they were alive, they weren't as celebrated. Bonhoeffer actually lost his life because of his opposition to, to Nazi Germany. And so what Jesus is calling these religious about is saying, um, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have done what you're saying you would have done. And I, I think about that like in terms of in terms of me following Jesus, if I was alive when Jesus was walking the earth, would I have been a disciple of his? I mean, think about that for yourself. Think about it. If he, when Jesus was, well, all these stories we read about of Jesus, and we say, you know, if we were alive, we would not have been like the Pharisees. We, have not, we would not have opposed him. We would have not been his enemies. We would have, we would have followed him. And if we were his followers, we would have been 100% committed to him. We would not be like his disciples who seemed to be confused and, and uh, who seemed to, well, as soon as the cross, they cut and run. We would not be like those. We would have followed Jesus. We would have been 100% sold out followers of Jesus. And I think this text today is forcing us to ask the question of, would we have? Would we have? Would we have been willing to do the things that Jesus was asking his disciples to do? Or the better question is, are we willing to do the things that Jesus is asking his disciples to do? 
because he's still asking. See, so Wednesday afternoon, I was, I was sitting outside on my porch, and I was writing this message. I write every Wednesday afternoon, and if the weather's right, it's always outside. And um, so I'm, I'm on my porch, and I've got my computer up, and I've got my Bible on this side. And you guys know how Bibles have these, these flimsy pages. You know, they, and there's a, just a little bit of breeze Wednesday that was blowing me. You know, every time I'd have it stuck right there on Matthew 23, it's blowing me to all these other sections. And I'd take my phone and try to set it up on it. And, and, but I'm sitting here thinking about, like, how does all this connect together? Like, when you take Matthew 23, and, and it, it, Jesus is talking about how he's calling us to account to look internally of, like, how would we have responded? You know, if we were alive in his day, how would we have responded? And I'm thinking, well, how does that apply to today? And how do we, how does all this kind of, how does this equal that? How do we get this back to service? Like, how does all this fit together? And, and the wind, and I'm not, this is not like, I'm not trying to be weird and creepy here. I'm saying, the wind blew my Bible away from Matthew and it landed on Mark. It was my study Bible and it had this little chart in it. And uh, the chart was titled Discipleship and Servant Leadership. And I had Scott recreate it for me on the graphic there. And it, I know that's a lot to take in. So if, if you can't take it in, that's okay. We're going to explain it all as we go through it here. But this chart talks about that there's three, pass, three chapters in, in Mark that go through the same cycle in all three chapters. As if Mark is trying to make a point about Jesus. And the cycle is this. Jesus predicts his death. And then the disciples respond with pride and misunderstanding. And then Jesus follows up and says, no, he recenters them on what it's really about. He talks about servanthood and cross-bearing discipleship. So this happens three times in the Gospel of Mark, and then it culminates in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I want to take you through it real quick. Real simple. The first one in, in chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he be, must be killed and after three days rise again. Then the disciples respond with, in this case, misunderstanding and actually a rebuke, because you've got to appreciate Peter. Verse 32 says, Jesus spoke plainly about this. Jesus said, I'm going to die and to be rose, rise again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, don't stop. Don't talk like that, Jesus. That's not the way this thing's going to play out. That's not, I know you don't understand the whole way this Messiah thing's going to play out. Maybe you hadn't studied your Old Testament, but that's not what this is going to happen. And Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus reset things. He called the crowd to him and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Jesus flips things around. Peter's concerned, has human concerns and, and Jesus is trying to recenter them on what Messiah really looks like, what leadership really looks like, what service really looks like. Happens again in chapter 9. Chapter 9, beginning in verse uh, 31, Jesus was with his disciples again, and he was teaching them, and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. The disciples didn't understand. Verse 32, they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was at the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. 
So the first time Jesus says, I'm going to go and die, Peter rebukes him. The second time he says, I'm going to go and die, it leads to an argument about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They still have human concerns, not godly concerns. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Next chapter, verse 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus was leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Here's the way the disciples respond this time. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> still human concerns, still concerned with pride, still more concerned with their position, even after these first two teachings here. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. They think they do, but they don't. And he says, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant and then he, he, he when when the ten heard about this they became indignant and then Jesus called all the disciples together again and again he taught them you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you instead whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So each time Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to give my life. Exactly what Scott talked about in that communion meditation. I came to give my life as a sacrifice for many. That is the reason I'm here. I came not to be served, but to serve. Then each time the disciples responded with their own concerns more than, than the concerns of Jesus. So each time they're more worried about their position in the kingdom. They're more worried about what kind of benefit they're going to get out of this. They're more worried about what they're going to receive out of this. I mean, each time they're more focused on human concerns than godly concerns. And then each time Jesus tries to reset things with them to explain, if you want to be a follower of mine, it will not come through power, and it will not come through position. If you want to be a follower of mine, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. You have to be willing to be last, and most importantly, you have to be willing to be a servant of all. And when I put all of that together... It stands to reason that good churches would do the same thing. That good churches would not be concerned with what benefits them or what position they have or what kind of power they have or what kind of reputation. Like the, the good churches are concerned with denying themselves, taking up their cross, a willingness to, to be last, a willingness to lose your life, for the sake of the gospel, and most importantly, a desire to serve all, to be a servant to all. That would be the characterization of a good church. That's the characterization of a good disciple. And that ultimately is why we changed our vision statement last year. 
was largely through, through study of these scriptures and thinking through all of these things. Like for years, I told you at the beginning of this message, I came to this church because of its vision statement. I came here because I wanted to be at a grace-oriented, non-denominational church. That's why I'm here. And that's still a big part of who we are. It'll always, we always expressed that for the last 15 years or so, a place where judgment ends and healing begins. And so that, that will continue to be a big part of who we are. Uh, everything in this series thus far has been about that, if you think about it. Empathy, humility, authenticity, all of that has been about a place where judgment ends and healing begins. But we don't just want to be internally focused there. We want to be externally focused. And so last year, we started using this phrase right here, for Jesus and for the city. Because we wanted to communicate that we want to be unapologetically for Jesus. We're a Jesus-centered church. That's in that unapologetically, we are for Jesus. Jesus is the formation and the foundation of everything we do. Everything we do at a church should be based on the life and teachings of Jesus. So that's number one. Number two is we're for the city. In other words, we're for the community. We want to be serving the community in which we live because that's the example that Jesus set for us. Jesus asked us to lay down our lives for others. So it's not about building our brand, building our reputation, franchising our church, and all these kinds of stuff. And there's been some mistakes made there. fully confess those it's about serving our community it's about reaching out and making a difference in this community how do we help this community be a better community how do we help people in this community whatever they're dealing with whatever they're struggling with how do we help build up the community that we have been planted in because you know like we say this a lot you know i want if we ever closed our doors i would want the community to mourn our passing now i'm not talking about the members of the church to mourn our passing but i would want if if we ever announced hey we're closing next sunday will be our last sunday we're closing i want the community to say well what are we going to do without that church in this community what are we going to do how are we going to you know what in the world we got to have these folks because i want us to be making that kind of difference whether that's you know adopting kids at brown elementary because they contacted us and said, hey, there's nine kids that just, we noticed they're wearing the same shirt every Sunday. And we did one little announcement about that, and there's people fighting over those kids. Like, I, no, give me those. I want to I wanna take care of those kids. And they overwhelmed them last week with the, the donations that were dropped off. We asked you to spend $100 a kid. You did not do that. Okay. So, uh, I mean, it just like, they're like, it's, it's credible what's happening. That's the kind of stuff I want to be involved in. Flood relief, that's the kind of stuff I want to be involved in. It was a little scary to do that because you know what? We lost a whole week's contribution when we did flood relief because everybody kind of just redirected it from here and put it there. And I was like, whoo, this is a little scary. But that's what, that's what the church is about. That's what we should be involved in. That's what we should be doing. And so whatever that looks at, whether it's counseling people to help them get out of a payday debt cycle, which is going on right now, whether it's building homes for people, uh, whether they're talking to us about doing that again, whether it's financially supporting these ministries. We're talking about like food ministries or clothing ministries or the homeless ministry or uh, people helping to recover from addiction and unplanned pregnancies, uh, domestic violence, whatever it is, I want to be a part. Like, that's the stuff that gets me excited. That's the stuff that gets me fired up. That's the vision. Like, I want to be a part of that because that's good. And that's what it means to be a good church. It means to follow in the example of Jesus. And to follow in the example of Jesus means that we're going to have to serve. And I want to be a part of doing that. That's the characterization of a good church. And I got to tell you, I got to quit because I see the time, but... When I think about the next 20 years of this church, things are going to get reset the first of this year. I really believe. Because if, if we come through on year-end giving like we normally do, 
then there's a real good chance we're debt-free to start 2022. And that changes the future of this church. And I'll talk more about it when we get a little closer to it. But that changes the future of this church. And our elders are already thinking about what ministries do we invest in next? Like, where do we go? And what do we, and we've, we've been talking with people. We've been talking to ministries. We've been talking with leaders in the city. We've been talking with people like, what, what do we do? Like, where do you need the help? Where can this church direct its focus and attention next? And uh, it's, to me, that is the most exciting thing to sit in those meetings and talk about that because that's reigniting and re-envisioning like what we want to be as a church. And the base of that is we want to be a church formed in the image of Jesus that's helping people be better disciples of Jesus and that's helping all of us serve because our tendency is the opposite. Like our tendency is to be selfish. So we need Jesus to help us share. Our tendency is to be prideful. We need Jesus to, to help humble us. Our, our tendency is to just take care of our own. We need Jesus to help us be externally focused and mission-minded and, and focused on our communities. Our tendency is to think, well, what do I get out of this? How am I being fed? We need Jesus to help us think about how am I feeding others and how am I serving others and how am I going out and taking care of my community. And uh, I got to quit, so let me pray. <clears throat> we'll pick it. We'll continue. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this church. I'm thankful for uh, the faithfulness. We stand on the, on the shoulders of giants. The, the, as Sherry and I talked this week, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears shed in the early first few years of this church. And, and we stand on the example. So I'm thankful of those, um, those people that, that came and had a vision for what church could be like. And uh, they followed up on that and, and planted this church. And I'm thankful that we're here uh, and are able to continue that. And God, I want to pray for the next 20 and the next 20 and the, the, the 20 that happened long after everybody's sitting in this room or watching online is, is gone. I pray that you help us to stay focused on what uh, you call us to do. And you help us stay focused on who, who you are and that we would just be more formed in your image. And we would be a church that's for Jesus and for this city. So, God, I ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, two things, real quick. One is our giving. We've not done that yet. So, uh, if you are giving today, if you're online, you can do that. There's probably a link.